That was terrific. Thank you, guys. There's a couple places in the Bible that talk about uh, signaling the arrival of the Lord with the with the sound of a trumpet call. And uh, I can imagine that on that night of Jesus' birth when the angels appeared to the shepherds in the sky that there might have been a, a beautiful trumpet call like that that we just heard. So that's pretty cool to think about that. Well, I, uh, I forgot to mention earlier, some of you may be wondering if we're going to be doing an offering tonight. Um, we're not going to be doing a formal offering. And uh, if you would like to give this evening, there's a basket at the back of the uh, sanctuary here. And you can uh, leave anything there if you like on your way out. But uh, this evening, I wanted to share a message titled, What's So Special About Jesus? What's so special about Jesus? If you were here yesterday for our Christmas Eve services... Uh, you may have uh, realized that Pastor Rick and I uh, had the exact same sermon title, What's So Special About Jesus? And uh, we actually are uh, doing complimentary messages, so you're not going to hear the same sermon twice. Don't worry if you're thinking, man, I already heard this one. Uh, we're doing a complimentary uh, two-part sermon on what is so special about Jesus. Actually, the funny story behind it all was uh, it was Wednesday afternoon, and Rochelle in the office uh, emailed Rick and I and said, do you guys realize that you have the exact same title and the uh, three of your four points are the exact same in your outlines? And uh, Rick and I had been working on our sermons completely independently of one another, and we ended up coming up with the exact same title, and three of our four points were exactly the same. So uh, I, I, uh, I, being the uh, low man on the totem pole, Rick said, Jason, you're going to have to redo your sermon. So... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, I was glad to do that, but uh, we, we have uh, two uh, complimentary sermons here. Uh, tonight I'm going to give you the second part of what's so special about Jesus. Uh, a couple years ago I had an opportunity to speak down at the University of Minnesota for the Christian Legal Society. I was uh, speaking at the University of Minnesota's law school and I was doing a special uh, presentation. And afterwards uh, we had a time of uh, Q&A, a question and answer time. And there were about a hundred students in this big lecture hall, and I had been talking about the uh, uh, this, the uh, impact of Christianity around the world today. And I had a young lady stand up in the audience uh, in the classroom that afternoon, and she raised her hand and she said, "Mr. Carlson, let me ask you a question." She said, "What's so special about Jesus Christ that you Christians feel it necessary to go all over the world?" telling people about the message of Jesus Christ. And she went on and she said, you know, why don't you just leave people alone? She said, people are happy. They've got their own cultures. They've got their own religions. You know, why don't you just leave them alone? What's so special about Jesus Christ, different from every other religion, every philosophy, that you Christians feel the need to go and share his message all over the world? You know, friends, that's an interesting question, isn't it? And that's a very significant question, I think, for all of us as Christians to answer. What is so unique? What is so special about Jesus Christ, different from every other religion, every other philosophy, every other great teacher of morality throughout the history of the world? What is it about Jesus Christ that inspires us to come to worship on Sundays, to share the truth of the gospel with our friends and family and neighbors, to tithe our income to the advancement of the kingdom. I mean, what is so unique and special about Jesus Christ that compels us to take his message around the world? Well, this evening, friends, I want to share with you four ideas, four truths about what makes Jesus so unique and so special. 
the thing that I find very amazing about Jesus Christ, last night if you were here, you heard Pastor Rick talked about Jesus Christ's unique birth. How Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and how out of all of human history, he was unique in that reality. What Rick didn't really get into a whole lot though was how Jesus Christ's unique birth was really the unique fulfillment of a whole series of biblical prophecies, some written 500, 700 years before the coming of the Messiah, that foretold, that prophesied the coming of Jesus Christ. Prophecies that were fulfilled, literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ, written hundreds of years before his coming. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we have over 300 prophecies speaking of the coming of the Messiah. It was very interesting. A few years ago, uh, my father and I had been invited to go and teach and speak down in New Zealand and Australia. And uh, if any of you have ever been uh, to New Zealand or Australia, you'll know that it's one of the longest flights in the world. Uh, it's, uh, I believe, a 15-hour, 17-hour flight uh, across the Pacific Ocean uh, down under to New Zealand. And uh, I always find it interesting to see who you're going to end up sitting next to on an airplane when you're, when you're on a flight, and in particular a flight of that type of length, because, uh, you know, you're going to get to know somebody pretty well over the course of 15 hours next to them. Well, we got on a plane, and we ended up sitting in the, uh, the middle section where they had four, uh, four seats, and my dad was on, uh, uh, I was on the aisle, my dad was right inside me, and we were waiting to see, you know, where the seats next to us going to be filled, and we were kind of hoping they weren't so we could stretch out a little bit, but as we're sitting there waiting, sure enough, this, this elderly couple comes walking down the aisle and uh, begins to make their way into these two seats next to my father and I. And uh, it didn't take long for us to greet them and start talking. And what, what, what are you guys doing going to New Zealand? And we were sharing what we're doing, and they were telling us what they were doing. And just a terrific couple. They were an elderly couple. Both of them were 75 years old. They were a Jewish couple from Long Island, New York. And uh, we had a great conversation talking about, uh, about their lives, their backgrounds. We got onto the topic of uh, religion and spiritual things. And uh, we began to ask them about their Jewish background, their Jewish faith. And they were somewhat religious, uh, religious Jews, but, uh, but not really. And uh, kind of practiced the major holidays, but that was about it. And uh, it, it was an interesting conversation. Over the course of the conversation, the man actually rolled up his shirt sleeve and he showed us on his arm where he had the numbers tattooed from the German prison camps uh, when he was a young boy uh, surviving the Holocaust uh, of Nazi Germany. Fascinating conversation with this 75-year-old Jewish couple. Well, for those of you who know, who, uh, you who know my dad, my dad was a, a pretty bold evangelist, and my dad always liked to kind of cut to the chase. So in the course of our conversation with this couple, after talking to them for about an hour or so, my dad just figured, I'm going to get right to the heart of the matter. And, and uh, he asked this couple sitting next to us, he said, let me ask you something. Why is it so hard for Jewish people to accept Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah? You know, just get right to the heart of the matter, you know. And, uh, and they looked at my dad and they said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, when you go through the Hebrew Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures make it very clear throughout that God had prophesied the coming of the Messiah. And when you understand the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, it becomes very clear that they were literally fulfilled in history in the person of Jesus Christ. And they said to us again, well, what do you mean? They had never seen any of the prophecies of the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
And so my dad and I, we opened up our Bibles and we began to spend the next half hour taking them through the Old Testament story, God's unfolding revelations and prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. It's very interesting when you think about how Jesus Christ uniquely fulfilled the prophecies in Scripture regarding the coming of the Messiah. We opened our Bibles with this couple and we started in Genesis chapter 3. And we read in Genesis chapter 3 that the Messiah would be born of the seed of a woman. He would be of the seed of a woman. Now this was unique out of all of the human beings in the history of the world because all the rest of us are of the seed of a man. And yet God said in Genesis chapter 3 that this one, the Messiah, would be the seed of a woman. He would not have a human father. We then turned a few pages over to Genesis chapter 9, where the Bible talks about following the great flood of Noah that had destroyed the world. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 9 that Noah's three sons would go forth to repopulate the planet. Do you remember Noah's three sons' names? Anybody? Shem's one of them. Ham and Japheth. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. God says, Noah, your three sons are going to go forth and repopulate the earth. And it's very interesting what God does in chapter 9 of Genesis. God eliminates two-thirds of the nations of the world. And he says that it would be through the line of Shem that the Messiah would be born. Through the line of Shem, eliminating two-thirds of the nations of the world. We then turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 17, where God tells us that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of Abraham. And that through him, through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We then read in Genesis that Abraham had two sons. What were their names? Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 17, God does something very interesting. God eliminates 50% of the descendants of Abraham. And he says that the promise of the Messiah would come through who? Through Isaac. It's very interesting how God begins to unveil his plan for the coming Messiah. We then read in Genesis that Isaac had two sons. You remember their names? Jacob and Esau. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And in Genesis chapter 27, God eliminates 50% of the descendants of Isaac. And he says that the promise would come through Jacob. We then read in Genesis chapter 49 that Jacob had 12 sons. And what were their names? All right, don't quiz me on that one either. But the 12 tribes of Israel... Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now watch what God does. God eliminates 11 twelfths of the descendants of Jacob. And he says that through the line of Judah, through the line of Judah, he would send his Messiah. We then read in Isaiah chapter 11 that from the tribe of Judah, through the root of Jesse, will come the Messiah. Through the root of Jesse. And then in 1 Samuel 17, we read that Jesse had eight sons. Jesse had eight sons. Watch what God does. God eliminates seven-eighths of the sons of Jesse. And he says that through the line of David, through the line of David, the Messiah would come. We then read in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that this Messiah, this promised one, would be born in Bethlehem. 
A prophecy given 500 years before the event. He would be born in Bethlehem. What's interesting is at the time, Bethlehem was nothing more than an obscure little town in the hill country of Israel. Less than a thousand people living there at the time. But the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read that His name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7 tells us that He would be born of a virgin. Now friends, that eliminates a lot of people. Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read that a child will be born but it is a son who will be given. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, we read that this one who is coming would be rejected by the Jews, his own people, but embraced by the Gentiles, his enemies. Now friends, that eliminates a lot of Jewish leaders. In Zechariah chapter 11, we read that this Messiah would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Not 29, not 31, but 30 pieces of silver. That's interesting in that gold was the monetary standard of the day. But the Bible says he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Psalm 22, writing in 1000 B.C., David tells us that the Messiah would be crucified. And in Psalm 22, he describes the crucifixion in graphic detail. 1000 B.C. What's interesting about that prophecy is crucifixion was never practiced until 200 B.C. It was never practiced in a Jewish colony until 63 B.C. And yet David, a thousand years before the crucifixion, describes it in precise, graphic detail. And as you read through the Old Testament, you begin to see how God began to pinpoint throughout human history who the Messiah would be so that there'd be no mistaking Him when He arrived. The Bible gives us over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. Now friends, if you've been paying attention, I've only given you about 13 of those prophecies tonight. Do you know that mathematicians tell us that the odds of just eight of those prophecies, the odds of just eight of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person, the odds of that are the same odds as if you were to take the entire state of Texas, bury the entire state of Texas three feet deep in silver dollars, and then take one silver dollar and mark an X on it, throw it out somewhere in the middle of the state of Texas, bulldoze it over, blindfold a person and then tell them to go pick out the one silver dollar with an X. That is the odds of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person. Friends, do you know that Jesus Christ not only fulfilled those eight prophecies, but He fulfilled all 300 plus prophecies of the Messiah given to us in the Old Testament? Friends, you have no excuse for rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. God very clearly identified to us for hundreds of years before His arrival who the Messiah would be so that we wouldn't miss Him, so that we would know when He arrived. 
Well, not only did Jesus Christ uniquely fulfill these prophecies about the coming Messiah, but Jesus Christ also had a unique nature. He uniquely fulfilled these prophecies, and he also had a unique nature. One of my favorite stories that my dad used to tell it was a story that he shared all over the world because no matter where you go around the world, people can relate to it. It was a story of a father and a son, a little boy, who were walking down a dirt path one day. And as they were walking down this dirt path, they came across an anthill that somebody had stepped on and smashed. And here was this anthill that was smashed, and these ants were scurrying about. Some of them were laying there dead. Some of them were obviously wounded. And this little boy, no older than four or five years old, he looked up at his dad and he said, Daddy, wouldn't it be nice if we could go down and tell those ants that we love them, tell those ants that we care about them, help them with their sick and their wounded? And this father, he looked down at his son with all the love and compassion he had. And he said, son, the only way we could tell those ants that we love them, the only way that we could tell those ants that we care about them and help them is if we ourselves could become an ant. And if we could live like an ant and talk like an ant by our lives, they would know what we are like. And they would know our love for them. And you know, friends, 2,000 years ago, God looked down upon a world that he had created, a world that he loved. And he saw a world that had been crushed under the weight of sin and evil. And he looked down upon his creation and he says, I want to tell you how much I love you. I want to tell you how much I care about you. I want to provide a way for you to be saved. And God said, how will I do that? And God said, I will become a man. And I will live like a man. And I will talk like a man. And by my life, you will know what I am like. And how much I love you. And so 2,000 years ago, in the greatest event that ever took place in human history, God became a man, entering into human history so that we could know who God is and what He's like and how we might enter into a relationship with Him. It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, we read about this coming of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, into the world. In John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, in John chapter 1, Starting in verse 1, John, one of Jesus' disciples, says this about who Jesus Christ was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Jumping down to verse 10, John says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, this is an interesting way that John begins his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Many of you know that John here, using the term the Word, is referring to Jesus Christ. 
In the beginning was Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was with God, and Jesus Christ was God. That's the claim John's making. But what's very interesting about this opening to John's Gospel, John's Gospel was written primarily for a Greek audience. The four Gospels all have kind of their own slant on the life of Jesus, written for specific people. Matthew was written more for a Jewish audience. The Gospel of John was written more for a Greek audience. As the gospel was being taken into the world, they wanted to make sure that they highlighted specific things that would be relevant to the various cultures that needed to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. And when John uses the term the Word here in reference to Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John picked that term very specifically, thinking of the Greek audience that he had in mind. The Word here, the term the Word in Greek is a word logos. It means the Word, Logos, the Word. Now what's interesting about that is over 2,000 years ago, even 2,000 years before the time of Christ, Greek philosophers recognized this concept of the Logos, the Word, as this life-empowering force in the universe. It was the creative force that sprang all life into existence. And it was the force that empowered all life to survive. They called it the Logos. But the Greek philosophers, they never knew or described or defined what or who this Logos was. They just knew that there had to be some creative force behind all of this. But they never know who or what this Logos was. And so John, writing to a Greek audience, very carefully chose this term. He said, you want to know who the Logos is? This life-empowering force this from which all things come? The Logos is Jesus Christ. He was with God, He was God, and all things were created by Him and through Him. John was very intentional when he declared that Jesus was the Word, the Logos, the life-empowering force that the Greek philosophers were waiting for, were looking for. And he says he's arrived. We see him in the person of Jesus Christ. When you see him, you see this Logos. Paul goes on to describe in Philippians 2, verses 5-8, through 8, that by his very nature, by very nature, Jesus himself was God in human flesh. You know, Jesus was very unique in his nature. He was fully God and yet fully man. Fully God and yet fully man. Again, fulfilling the prophecies that the Old Testament had told us about who this Messiah would be. People often ask me, Jason, well, that doesn't make sense. What, how do you explain that, that Jesus was fully God and fully man? If you turn to the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul kind of defines this for us a little bit better. In Colossians chapter 1... Verses 15 and on, uh, the Apostle Paul explains what it means for Jesus to have been this word, this Logos, fully God and fully man. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 1 in the book of Colossians, Paul says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was a created being. He wasn't firstborn in the sense that he was the firstborn created being. The word firstborn here is simply a Greek term that means preeminent, above all, the place of highest honor. He was the firstborn, the preeminent, the highest of all of creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. I was reading this passage one time when I was speaking to a youth group, and a student, after I finished reading this passage, raised his hand. He said, Jason, I don't get it. I don't get it. He said, how is Jesus the image of the invisible God? What does that mean? Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Well, friends, it's very interesting. Do you realize that as we sit here in the sanctuary here this evening, right now, as we sit here all around us in this room, there are television shows, sporting events, movies. They're all around us right now. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. All over in this room right now. We can't see them, but they're here. You know something, though? If we were to hook up an antenna to that little black box on the wall called a television set, if we were to hook up an antenna to that television set, turn on the power, adjust the dial, you know what would happen? Suddenly the invisible would be made visible. The Bible says that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. God, who is spirit, wanted to reveal himself to us. And so God said, I will become a man. And when, he, when we look at Jesus Christ, we are looking at the visible expression of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God is like? Have you ever wanted to know what God is like? If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ. Paul says that Jesus Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. Not only did Jesus uniquely fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah, not only did Jesus have a unique nature being fully God and fully man, but Jesus Christ also lived a unique life. A life that has transformed human history. A life that stands above all other philosophers, above all other religious leaders throughout all time. Jesus Christ is unique above them all. We celebrate Christmas today. The whole world celebrates Christmas today because of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. When my dad was in high school, he entered a California state speech tournament. He wrote a piece on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ that he delivered over the season of his speech season. My grandfather and my father wrote this piece on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. I wanted to read it for you tonight as we think about what is so special about Jesus Christ. He possessed no certificates nor degrees. He never traveled farther than 100 miles from the place he was born. He lived and moved among the common people. He was not an author. He wrote no books, composed no poems, compiled no documents, edited no papers, nor contributed to any periodicals. The only sentence he ever wrote was a single line in the sand, which disappeared the same day. No letter of it was preserved. He never used a fountain pen, a typewriter, a personal computer. We have no line, word, or syllable from his hand. And yet, more books have been written about him and his words than any other man. 
He has affected the lives of more people than all the authors of all the ages. The story of his life has been translated into more than 1,800 languages, read by countless millions, and is the best-selling story every year. He was not an orator, yet no man spake as this man. His discourses have become the theme of millions of addresses. His words are simple and clear. Very few adjectives are used, yet his sentences abound with beauty, meaning, and grace. His sayings are hammered into polished marble, chiseled into imperishable granite, wrought into enduring bronze tablets, fashioned in stained glass windows of numerous churches, etched in rich mosaics upon temple walls, and set in arched domes of colossal cathedrals. His words are literary gems. He stands as the unequaled seer of all literature. Shakespeare, Milton, and Emerson bow their heads in his presence recognizing a superior. He was not a poet, yet he inspired thousands of poets to utter their most sublime expressions. He was not a musician, yet he inspired Mozart, Schubert, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Handel, and countless others. He was not an artist, nor a sculptor, nor a painter. He never handled a brush nor wielded a chisel. He was a stranger to the palette and canvas. Yet he was the inspiration for Raphael, Michelangelo, Hoffman, and so many more. He was not a lawyer, yet he knew the law, interpreted it, and applied it to the relationships which should prevail among men and women. He himself became the fountainhead of righteousness. He was not a doctor, yet he healed the sick, opened blind eyes, unstopped deaf ears, cleansed the leper, and raised the dead. He was not a statesman. He never held nor aspired to official position. He did not delve into politics, but he did found a kingdom. He was not a general, yet he became the conqueror of the world. In war or in peace, in good times or bad, it remains true that no single word grips the hearts of men like the name of Jesus. To say that history bears his imprint is putting it much too mildly. Lecky, the famous historian, speaks without exaggeration when he declares the simple record of three short years of Christ's active life has done more to regenerate mankind than any other influence that has ever been felt on earth. If anyone doubts this, just let him try to imagine what it would be like in this world of 2011 if suddenly the name of Jesus were torn from us and with it everything for which it stands. You know, life is hard enough as it is. It would be intolerable without the message of Christmas. It would be unbearable without the song of Easter. Friends, Jesus Christ is unique amongst all the philosophers of all the great teachers of morality throughout the history of the world. We celebrate Christmas, my friends, because the whole world cannot escape the reality that this man, this God-man, radically transformed human history. And the whole world celebrates Christmas. You know, we're coming up on New Year's Eve this next week. I'll never forget New Year's Eve 12 years ago. 
Remember what happened New Year's Eve 12 years ago? Anybody remember? What was it? Y2K. You guys remember Y2K? Y2K, we were celebrating the turn of the millennium. The whole world stopped to celebrate Y2K. I remember watching on TV that, that night, celebrations, fireworks going off in every capital city around the world. Tokyo, Beijing, Sydney, Moscow, Paris, Cairo, London, Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, Washington, D.C., Mexico City. Fireworks going off at midnight all the way across the world. Everyone around the world was celebrating 2,000 years. Why? We celebrated 2,000 years for just one reason. Because the world could not escape the reality that 2,000 years ago something radical happened that forever changed human history. That God had invaded human history and He had forever split history into B.C. and A.D. when God became a man and lived among us. Jesus Christ, my friends, has transformed everything. And we celebrate Christmas. The entire world celebrates Christmas because of Jesus Christ and His unique life. You know, you ever thought about that? Jesus Christ is revered by every major religion in the world. You ever realize that? The Buddhists recognize Jesus as a great moral teacher. The Hindus recognize Jesus as a a great guru. The Muslims recognize Jesus as the greatest of the prophets. Every major religion in the world recognizes or reveres Jesus Christ. He's the only major religious figure that is revered by every other religion in the world. We celebrate Christmas. We don't celebrate Buddhamus or Krishnamus or Mohammed must. The whole world celebrates Christmas because they cannot escape the reality that there was something very unique, very special about Jesus Christ, different from every other religion, every other philosopher in the history of the world. Well, not only did Jesus Christ uniquely fulfill prophecy, not only did He have a unique nature, not only did He live a unique life, but Jesus Christ had a unique message. Jesus Christ had a unique message. The Bible tells us what human, human, men and women's problem is. You know, all the religions and philosophies of the world are trying to explain what's wrong with humanity. What's our basic problem? And the Bible tells us that our basic problem is sin. Romans 3.23, the Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is holy. Men and women are sinful. And this sin has separated us from our Creator God. The good news, though, is what the Apostle Paul says just a few chapters later in Romans 6.23. He says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the gift of God, the gift He gave us on that first Christmas when Emmanuel showed up, God with us, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, that's a unique message different from any other religion, any other philosophy. That God offers us a gift, a way to be saved. No other religion offers that. And this is the great difference between Christianity and every other religion, every other philosophy. You know, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that Christianity is just another religion. You know, what are religions? Religion is about men and women trying to make our lives right in the eyes of God. It's about trying to earn favor in God's eyes through our good works, through our rituals, through our sacrifices, through our money. But the problem is the Bible says that God is holy. 
The Bible says that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. And there's nothing that we can ever do on our own accord to earn or work or buy for our salvation. And that's why God gave us a gift. He says, this is my son. If you put your trust in him, if you confess your sins, he will wash them clean. And like we read in John chapter 1, he gives us the right to be called a child of God. Let me just close with one last story, and this will be it. I've got a family friend, a guy by the name of Lou. Lou, if he were here tonight, he'd share his testimony. It's a great testimony about the unique nature of Jesus' message, different from every other religion in the world. Lou grew up in Thailand. He was a Buddhist the first 25 years of his life. Came from a devout Buddhist family in Thailand. When Lou was 25 years old, he received a scholarship to come over to the United States to study here at the university. Lou, over the course of a year studying at the university, was befriended by a group of Christians on campus. After a year here at the university, Lou eventually renounced his Buddhism and put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If Lou were with us tonight, he would share his testimony and he would tell you what is so unique about the message of Jesus Christ. Lou explains that when I was a Buddhist, he says, when I was a Buddhist, it was like I was in the middle of this large lake and I was drowning and I didn't know how to swim. And Lou says, I was doing everything I could, trying to keep my head above water, gasping for breath, trying to stay alive. But Lou says, I was going under. And Lou says, I looked out on the shore of that lake. And as I was gasping for breath, trying to keep my head above water, I looked out on the shore of that lake and I saw Buddha. I saw Buddha walk up to the edge of the lake. And Buddha walked up to the edge of the lake and he began shouting out instructions. Lou, if you'll simply paddle your arms and kick your feet, you'll be able to keep your head above water. You'll be able to swim. But the Buddha said, Lou, you need to make it to shore by yourself. And Lou explains that he was doing everything he could trying to follow the Buddha's instructions, trying to follow the Buddha's guidance, trying to make his way back to shore. But Lou says, I was drowning. I was gulping down water. I was going under. And he says, I looked out on the shore of that lake one last time. And this time I saw Jesus Christ walk up to the edge of the lake. But Lou says, Jesus Christ didn't stop at the edge of the lake. Jesus Christ dove out into that lake and he swam out and he rescued me. And Lou says, Jesus brought me safely back to shore. And once Jesus had brought me safely back to shore, then he taught me how to swim so that I could go back and rescue others. You see, friends, this is the key difference between the message of Jesus Christ and every other religion, every other philosophy. Every other religion in the world is about how we try to earn our salvation, how we try to make ourselves right in the eyes of God. But because of God's holiness, there is nothing that we could ever do to make ourselves right with God. And this is why the message of John 3.16, the most famous Bible verse in the world, this is why the message of John 3.16 is so powerful. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. You know, I remember watching the Super Bowl last year. I'm a Packer fan. And I remember watching the Super Bowl, 
after the Packers had won that Super Bowl last year, I remember seeing Aaron Rodgers standing on the stage holding up the trophy, the Lombardi trophy, and the crowd around him, his teammates around him were going wild, the confetti was falling, and everybody's eyes were focused on the Lombardi trophy as, this, as if this was the most important thing in that stadium. But I also remember looking off behind the stage in the crowd in the stands, and there was a single man with a sign holding it proudly for the whole world to see. John 3.16. You know, as much as I love to see that Lombardi trophy being hoisted by Aaron Rodgers, the most powerful thing that happened that night in that stadium was when the truth of the gospel, the gift of God given to us that first Christmas, was raised proudly for the world to see. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The message of Jesus Christ is unique out of all the religions in the world. I want to encourage you, friends, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, man, there's no greater Christmas gift that you could receive tonight than to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's why he came, because he loves you, and he wants a relationship with you. It's why we celebrate Christmas, because we who have put our trust in him have been forgiven. We've been redeemed. We've been restored into a relationship with our Creator. I want to close in a word of prayer tonight as Sean plays some music quietly in the background. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me this evening. I'm going to say a simple prayer tonight. If you're sitting here tonight and you're not sure that you've ever put your trust in Jesus Christ, I'm just going to say some simple words, and I'd encourage you just to repeat these words in the quiet of your own heart right now. God hears your, knows your heart. He hears it. He hears your words in silence. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this Christmas, for the powerful reminder of who you are and what you've done for us, for the hope that we have because of you. Lord, for my friends in this room who have put their trust in you as Lord and Savior, Lord, we rejoice tonight together because of who you are. And Lord, if there are any friends in this room tonight who have not yet embraced you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray, God, that even right here tonight, that they wouldn't leave this building without having the assurance of the hope of knowing that they too are a child of God. And what's amazing about it, Lord, is it's so easy. You tell us in the Bible that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is the Messiah, that we shall be saved. And so if you're here tonight and you're saying, I want to trust Jesus, all you need to do Say a simple prayer. Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. And I need the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive me of my sins. I believe in you. I trust in you. And I want to accept that gift that you purchased for me on the cross. And I too want to know the hope of resurrection and eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus.